Well, good morning. I want to thank you for your response during October for our Socktober collection. You collected an entire Rubbermaid bin full of socks for the families and kids at Glenview Elementary. And we also collected through our children's bucket about $150 that will be able to buy socks for these kids and families there. So I appreciate that so much, and they're going to appreciate it. And so we'll be getting those over there to them. Also, I received a phone call uh, late last night from uh, Tressa, my wife's uncle. And so there was a a gentleman and his wife that used to worship with them in Deltona, Florida. And they moved recently to Rogers to be with their kids, this this husband and wife did. And he had a, a heart attack and was brought here to Little Rock VA from Rogers. And so he is in the Little Rock VA and undergoing uh, right now, I think, some cardiac rehab. But uh, her uncle called me because um, they know no one. <laughs> they are, they, their family is in Rogers. Their kids are in Rogers and, and with jobs and stuff. And they know nobody here. And right now she is splitting her time between um, the, the recliner there at the VA hospital. And if you've been in a room at the VA, you know that, re- that ain't much. And that in a hotel. And so he was calling to see if we might know someone who might be able to provide uh, this lady there. She's in the late 70s. He's 80. She's probably 78 or so. Uh, be able to provide uh, just a place for her to, to sleep when she's not at the hospital uh, while he's going through this cardiac rehab. Uh, and and um, if you are in a position to do that, uh, will you talk to me after services? And so uh, we can work that out and, and we can get in contact with her. I have not spoken to her about this yet. I wanted to ask first. Uh, before I uh, made some sort of offer that we could not do. But I just wanted to bring that to you because he asked me. And so uh, I ask you, if that's something you, you might be able to help with, just talk to me after services and uh, we'll, we'll work out some details there. Um, so think about this. You know, you think about this huge uh, steamer that's edging slowly across the, the Atlantic uh, Ocean. And so... You get around this, this fog, this dense fog. And so you've got this, uh, this somber notes from the foghorn or crying out uh, through the fog here. And so the captain, who is near exhaustion from uh, just lack of sleep, he gets a gentle tap on his shoulder. And says, Captain, he turns, and he, he turns around and comes face to face with uh, this old man. And the old man says, Captain, I, I've got to tell you that I, I've got to be in Quebec Saturday afternoon. This was Wednesday. And so the captain pondered a moment and he snorted. He said, it's impossible. We cannot navigate in this. It's impossible uh, to get there. And the man said, well, very well. If if your ship can't take me, then God is going to find some other way to get me there. Because I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. And so the captain lifts his weary hands and he says, I, I, I would help if I could, but I can't do anything about this. And undaunted, the old man says, well, sir, let's go down into to your map room. And let's pray about this. And so the captain raises his eyebrows in, in, in disbelief. And he looks at the old man as if the old man just escaped from an asylum. And he says, do you know how dense the fog is? And the old man says, no, no, sir. My eye is not on the thickness of the fog, but my eye is on the living God who guides every circumstance of my life. You see, faith has this ridiculousness about it. Many times, much of the times, and you're not necessarily acting by faith if you're doing what everyone around you is doing, necessarily. At the beginning of this series, I I, I likened 
living by faith to the phrase uh, marching to the beat of a different drum. And so faith always appears to defy circumstances because faith constitutes a risk or a venture. And so the author of Hebrews spends this writing here, this entire letter, persuading Christians, Christians who were likely under persecution and are going to undergo a, a lot more persecution, spends this ink here to, to convince them to hold on to their beliefs. They believe in a dead, air quotes, dead deliverer, this Messiah. He says, hold on to that belief, even if your life depends on it. And so chapter after chapter, he urges the Christian to hang on to this faith in Christ, to hang on no matter what the odds are, the circumstances, to hang on no matter how dense the fog is. And so he urges us to keep our eye not on the thickness of the fog of life, but to keep our eye on the living Savior and to make Him the Lord over every circumstance of our life. And so throughout this letter, if you read from, from beginning to end, you come across this, this word today that, that crops up over and over again, time and time again, today. He talks about today and he connects today with Jesus. Jesus is enthroned as Lord of creation today. And yesterday he lived on earth as, as a man. He died and he rose again. And today he lives in God's presence and he continues forever. And so when we live by faith, we show this to be true in our lives, just as it is true in reality. And so the promise of God's deliverer became fulfilled when Jesus was raised from the grave. And yet there are those like, like, who received this letter of Hebrews who still wait for the full realization of what Jesus has conquered. And namely, that's death. He conquered death. And so it's why he would write in chapter 11 and verse 1, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for, being convinced of what we do not see. For by faith, the people of old received God's commendation. So it's confidence in and assurance of the promises of God. Well, which promises? All of them. It's all of them. And so we've been looking at examples here in chapter 11 of those who lived in confidence of God's Word. They weren't remarkable people. And I hope you've seen that. They weren't remarkable people, but they're people whose lives were led by remarkable faith. And so today we're going to look at David. Look at this man, David. And the Old Testament devotes a whole lot of ink to this man, David, in his life and his deeds. But he is among those who, who only have their names mentioned in passing in Hebrews chapter 11, which is real interesting. And admittedly, the author says, look, I don't have time to expound on all this. I'm just, you guys, you guys know David. And he, and he moves on to someone else. And so he relies on the reader's memory and the knowledge of the life of David. And so you know what made David so well known outside of the Jewish nation, outside of, of this book of the Bible. You know what story? Everybody knows this story. The situation looks so bleak for the Jews, for the Hebrews here. On the side of this mountain. And so the Philistines' mightiest warrior, Goliath, stands before them, nine feet, nine inches tall, challenging them to a fight. Send somebody down here to fight me. And so this, the sight of this warrior, Scripture tells us, was enough to cause all the men of Israel to skedaddle. <laughs> they, were, they were beaten feet, man. The average height. Think about this. Archaeology tells us the average height at this time would have been between five and five and a half feet. That's the average height of a man. That's why Saul, when Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else, he's probably about six, six two. 
And so he would have stood head and shoulders over the average height of a person. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 24 tells us that when the Israelites saw Goliath, they ran away in terror. David, however, who was likely a, a teenager, a, a late teenager, too young to be enlisted into the king's army here, he was willing to face this giant, but King Saul was afraid of the giant. And so Saul had misplaced faith in himself, and David had placed his faith in God. But that faith was not blind. This wasn't blind faith. I read in verse 34 that David said to Saul, your, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair. I struck it and I killed it. He's trying to convince Saul, you've got to let me do this. Because Saul didn't want, I'm not sending a kid down there for this. He says, you get, here's, here's why I need to go. And so then he continues, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, go, <laughs> go and the Lord be with you. So the, the defiant pride of this Philistine warrior against the unwavering faith of a shepherd boy. And so Saul permitted David to face the giant. And he faced him with five stones, but it only took one stone for that giant to fall. And by faith, David confronted the Philistine warrior and Israel then slaughtered the Philistines. Now, we'll likely never face a nine foot giant, but life brings to us some seemingly impossible moments, doesn't it? It does. If it hasn't yet, it surely will. But David had confidence that he's going to get through a seemingly impossible moment because his confidence was in the promise of God. See, on God's orders, David had already been anointed king of Israel. Couldn't officially take the throne, but he'd already been anointed by Samuel to, to be king of Israel because God had removed that privilege from Saul. Things just hadn't played out completely yet. And so Saul had failed to honor God as king. And so the least of his brothers, now you've got David, who stands in contrast to what would have been obvious choices to lead Israel. His, his, every one of his brothers looked the part, except for David. But in God's eyes, God's ways are not our ways, nor are his thoughts our thoughts. And so we read, he sent him. His dad, Jesse, sent for David, had him brought in. He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance, handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. We've heard that before, haven't we? Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And Samuel then went to Ramah, went on his way. So all of Saul and the rest of the army could see was the thickness of the fog. And when the fog rolls in your life, it is the light of Christ's victory that shines in the darkness. And so we put so much emphasis, I think, on this single stone that brought down this giant as if that was a miracle. One stone was a miracle. David was not freakishly good with a sling. He wasn't. See, sling stones were important weapons in an ancient ar army's uh, arsenal. 
They're military weapons here. He'd been using a sling likely for several years, probably since he could walk. He was proficient with the sling, as anyone who trains constantly and consistently with weapons of skill would be. And so as caretaker of a sheep, he had to have all kinds of ways. He had to learn how to take care of them. And so a sling was likely one of the weapons that he used. And a sling, these types of slings could launch a projectile up to 60 miles per hour with near pinpoint accuracy in a competent slinger. <laughs> and so they didn't sell these at the Five and Dime. You can't, I'm not, we're going to Branson next weekend. I can't buy one of these at the Five and Dime in Branson. This was serious stuff. David and Goliath is not about the sling and the stone. Cover your kids' ears. <laughs> David and Goliath is not about the sling and the stone. Because of faith in God, David was able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death and he feared no evil. David had no more ability to fight this giant than the soldiers cowering on that mountainside. But what he did have was more faith. And faith moves us forward to action. And so several years later, uh, after David was established king of Israel, he feels bad because he's living in a pretty sweet digs. He's got a nice mansion. He's got a pretty sweet place. And he looks around, he feels bad because he's got this mansion and yet the tabernacle of God is still this portable tent. And so David wants to build God a permanent house. But God tells him, look, I've been with you every step of the way. I've been with you from the flock of the field to the throne in this palace here. And God says, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build you a house and I'm going to secure your dynasty. Your son will build my house for me. And so, of course, God was foretelling the coming of the Christ and, and, and securing his house in this dynasty through family, David's family tree. But in an immediate sense, it's going to be Solomon, David's son, who builds the physical temple for God. And again, David demonstrates great faith because he believed God. He believed what God said to such an extent that David went ahead and said, I'm going to go ahead and get some stuff together for him. Even though I'm not going to be able to do this, I'm going to get some stuff together. Let's go cut some trees. Let's put together some, some stones and all this. Let's build a little surplus. You know, he's, he's, he's fencing off a little area and putting up a construction sign. You know, we're going to get this ready for this to happen, even though I'm not going to be the one to do it. And David, I don't think there's any reason to think David understood the Christ. But David understood construction. <laughs> He'd done plenty of that. And so he made blueprints for this temple. He even began stockpiling these supplies and surplus. And so David is never going to see the temple. But by faith, he prepared much of the material that would be used to build it. First Chronicles 28 and verse 19 says, David said, all of this I put in writing as the Lord directed me and gave me insight regarding the details of the blueprints. And so he put these blueprints together. And we know that Solomon had his issues with obeying God. You continue and read the story of, of those who follow David. Solomon had some pretty big issues following and, and obeying God. And the kingdom of Israel began their decline under his leadership. But what must it have been to know that your father would never see the promises of God fulfilled. And yet you see him active in doing what he could while he could in the time that he had. See, David just could have said, meh, eh, since I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be the one building it, then just let them deal with it. 
that'll be their problem to solve. And I'm just going to kick back and enjoy the rest of my life here, what I've got left. But David realized that although he was not going to experience the fulfillment of the promise, that because God said it, it was as good as already done. It was as good as already done. So David lives as if the promise had already come true. And he worked within his ability until his last days. David loved his people and he loved his family. And he must have known that they would see his faith in action. They're going to see what he's doing. And maybe they'll find some strength for their labors from his efforts. Maybe seeing him working. And we can find that too. But this didn't happen overnight. See, faith is not an overnight success story. Faith is an enduring, sometimes complicated, winding road. If you guys are friends with Janet on Facebook, go look at that post she put about these crazy roads that people are building all over the world. I was thinking about when I saw those, I thought, oh, man, that's that's faith right there. You know, faith is an enduring, sometimes complicated winding road. And there are times in the early years when David and his army returned home, they returned back home from from being out in the way and fighting, only to find that the enemy had burned down their city and took captive All of their family took the whole town captive. And so David's army was embittered by defeat. They threatened to stone David. Look what you've done to us because of your actions. But David remembered that every time Saul had attempted to kill him, God delivered David out of Saul's hand because God had never left him. God had never left David. David had always managed to survive Because God was with him. And so this situation is going to be no different. So David strengthened himself in the Lord his God, as as we read there. And then he asked the Lord, what should I do? What should I do? They wanted to kill me. What should I do? And time and time again, David would find himself in harm's way. And God delivered him because God had a greater plan for David. And that would be that his family, through his family, would come the eventual Messiah, would come the Christ would come the Son of God, born into this world. So long before the Apostle Paul would encourage Christians with these words, David had already realized, Romans 8 and verse 28, how we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. And so certainly we can look at these triumphant aspects of David's life and we can see why he was included In this list of faithful followers. I get that. But here's the thing. Scripture reveals something else about David's life, which teaches us another aspect of faith. And Scripture does not back away from the sins of David. And perhaps the best known episode was his adultery with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. And so this powerful king, and a soldier who was away from home, distracted by the, 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 the urgency of battle, and a wife of that soldier awaiting his safe return at home. And so the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And David not only violates God's law, but he violates the trust of his position. He violates the trust of his, his friend, his, his friendship he violates. And to make matters worse, he has Bathsheba's husband killed to hide this sin. And so it was his deadened will that led to this sin. A will that's eventually going to become twisted and forget the the immense graces 
that God has showered him with in his life. And so David acts in a way that might seem beyond belief. And if we look at biblical history and we consider the faith that he showed in the past, we may think, what in the world? How did this happen? This can't be the same guy. But he allowed negligence and sensuality to corrupt his will. And so what do we say about someone today? Think about, what do you say about someone today who would commit adultery and then commit first-degree murder to cover that up? What do you say about them? What if that someone was in great political position of power? Or what if that someone held a great legal position or great legal power? How do we look at them? What headline do we write about them? If all we knew about David... If all we knew about David were his decisions to pursue Bathsheba and to kill Uriah, what would we say about him? What would we, how would we refer to him? What if all, okay, so forget that. What if all we knew about David was how in, 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 in the, the, the sweetness of his heart, he adopted the son of, of, of dead King Saul, his handicapped son, Mephibosheth, and invited him into his own home and raised him as his own son. What if that's all we knew about David? Now what would we say about him? We say a little something different? We describe him in a different way? What if all we knew about David was his showdown with Goliath? Then what would we say about him? What if the only information we had about David were the words of the Apostle Paul speaking of how God removed Saul and appointed David. What if this is all we knew about him? Acts 13 and verse 22, after removing him, God raised up David, their king. He testified, God testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart who will accomplish everything I want him to do. Okay, so go ahead. Pick one choice. You pick one. Pick one action. Pick one period of time, pick one moment in your life as an example of who you are. I'll give you a second. Think of one moment, one example in your life that describes entirely who you are. I'll give you a second. You got it? <laughs> what would it be? What would it be? Can you really do that? I cannot. I cannot do that. I don't even want to try. I cannot because there are 49 years of, 49 years of life. I'm sorry. 49 years of life that brought me to this point though. I cannot pick one out because I had unequal portions of stupidity and brilliance all mixed into that that have brought me to this point. So one scene is not reflective of who I was or who I am or who I will be. Nor is it you. See, these examples of faith, I believe, were selected by the author of Hebrews, not because of the measure of their character, but because of the measure of their faith. So David might have abandoned his way a few times, but he never abandoned his faith. So how could God claim David as being after his own heart? How could he do that? Same way he claims you and me. And that's why in Hebrews 11 and verse 6, we read, Now without faith, is it, impossible? it is impossible to please Him. For the one who approaches God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him or diligently seek Him. And so then you've got the prophet Nathan who confronts David after this sin with Bathsheba. And through his words, Nathan 
succeeds in awakening David's conscience and his faith. And he encourages him to seek God's forgiveness. David, yes, you've done this unbelievable thing, but you need to ask God's forgiveness. And God grants him that forgiveness when he confesses that sin to God. It's the beginning of a new conversion. And it leads David to draw even closer to the God of Israel. So David's realizing now it's less serious to fall than it is to remain on the ground. David's credited with having written a psalm based on his coming to repent of these sins. And David acknowledges the justice and the mercy of God. Listen to his heart. Psalm 51. After he comes to this repentance, have mercy on me, O God, because of your loyal love, because of your great compassion, wipe away my rebellious acts, wash away my wrongdoing, cleanse me of my sin, for I am aware of my rebellious acts. I am forever conscious of my sin. Look at verse four against you, you above all, I have sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. So you were just. When you confront me, you are right when you condemn me. Skip down to verse 10. Create for me a pure heart, O God. Renew a resolute spirit within me. Do not reject me. Do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Let me again experience the joy of your deliverance. Sustain me by giving me the desire to obey. O Lord, give me the words. Then my mouth will praise you. Certainly you do not want a sacrifice or else I would offer it. You do not desire a burnt sacrifice. The sacrifices God desires are a humble spirit. Oh God, a humble and repentant heart you will not reject. How does he know this about God? How can he write this this psalm, pour out these beautiful words about God? How can he know this? Because faith comes from hearing. The Word of God. David had listened. He had listened to God. He had experienced life with God. He had evaluated life without God. And he found it completely insufficient. And above all else, David chose God. David was weak as a human. He was susceptible to sinful choices. And yet, as expressed towards the end of his life, he feared God and he kept His commandments. He wasn't, not perfectly. That's humanly impossible. David was not perfect, but he was always motivated by love and by reverence. And so the God of Israel spoke. The protector of Israel spoke to me. The one who rules fairly among men, the one who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning when the sun comes up. A morning in which there are no clouds. He is like the brightness after rain that produces grass from the earth. My dynasty is approved by God, for He has made a perpetual covenant with me, arranged in all its particulars and secure. He always delivers me and brings all I desire to fruition. But evil people are like thorns. All of them are tossed away, for they cannot be held in the hand. And the one who touches them must use an iron instrument or the wooden shaft of a spear. They are completely burned up right where they lie. So you know the motivational saying. It's not how you start. It's how you finish, right? It's not how you start. It's how you finish. Well, living by faith is how you start. 
and it is how you finish. See, David offered God what God wanted the most. A broken spirit. A contrite heart. A heart that realizes the difference between obedience and sin. And upon realizing the difference, acknowledges the sin in his life. Feels a deep sorrow for that sin. When sin wins the moment. And asks forgiveness from a gracious God. Then lives the next moment with this expressed joy that Jesus has won the victory over sin. We're not bound by that sin. We're not in dominion to that sin. And it's been said that God can draw straight with crooked lines. God can draw straight with crooked lines. Just look around, right? And from the sin of, of, of Adam and Eve in the garden to the last moments of this life before eternity. Moments which are known only to God. There's nothing but crooked lines. <laughs> Our entire life is, is full of crooked lines. Ups and downs of humanity are mirrored in my life. And I would say probably also yours. But with Jesus, with Jesus, God has drawn a straight line to His eternal throne. And the path of that line is called faith. And no matter how far we might veer to the right or to the left, that line remains for us to follow as straight as it ever was. Always there. Always lit. Always illuminated. Always accessible. And I hope, as we're seeing through these examples of Hebrews 11, that we realize God does not expect perfection. God expects persistence. Persistent faith. Living by faith is day by day. Season by season. And in the end, that we may, like David and like all the believers gone on before us, and like the Apostle Paul, we might be able to proclaim 2 Timothy 4 and verse 7, that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. Praise God for His righteousness. And praise God that Jesus has become our righteousness. And praise God that He invites us to receive that freely by faith. Man, you, one thing that Satan will do is he will hang on to a thought and he will hold it and nail it into your psyche. Until you believe there is no hope, there is no relief, there is no way that God can love me because of what I have done and what I struggle with. That is from Satan. Jesus Christ tells us to lay that burden down at the cross because He has nailed those thoughts to the cross. He has become our righteousness. You will never be perfect, but you are being perfected in Christ Jesus. That is God's promise. That is God's will. That is God's plan. That is God's preparation for our eternity. And those in Christ Jesus can live by faith that even when we stumble and fall, even when we hear Satan's voice louder than we hear the voice of the Spirit, God has not forsaken us, but He waits patiently and lovingly for us to confess that sin, to repent of that sin, and to lay our hearts at the feet of Jesus to be picked up and cradled 
in His love. And this morning, as we assemble together, you need prayers from this body of believers that you can live your life fully by faith, strengthened by faith, encouraged by faith, confident, not in yourself, but in the faith that you have in Jesus Christ. We'll pray with you this morning. And if you're ready to put on Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're ready to be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, to be washed clean of the sins that you have committed so that the blood of Christ will continually cleanse you as you repent and confess that sin, to receive the blessing of God's Spirit, the promise of eternal life He has in store for you. If you're ready to do that this morning, the water is ready. And we will celebrate and rejoice with you. If we can help you in any way as we stand and sing this song, will you come this morning?